section twenty nine of english literature by william j long this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter nine eighteenth century literature seventeen hundred eighteen hundred part one augustan or classic age history of the period the revolution of sixteen eighty eight which banished the last of the stuart kings and called william of orange to the throne marks the end of the long struggle for political freedom in england thereafter the englishman spent his tremendous energy which his forebears had largely spent in fighting for freedom in endless political discussions and in efforts to improve his government in order to bring about reforms votes were now necessary and to get votes the people of england must be approached with ideas facts arguments information so the newspaper was born note the first daily newspaper the daily current appeared in london in seventeen o two end of note and literature in its widest sense including the book the newspaper and the magazine became the chief instrument of a nation's progress social development the first half of the eighteenth century is remarkable for the rapid social development in england hitherto men had been more or less governed by the narrow isolated standards of the middle ages and when they differed they fell speedily to blows now for the first time they set themselves to the task of learning the art of living together while still holding different opinions in a single generation nearly two thousand public coffee-houses each a centre of sociability sprang up in london alone and the number of private clubs is quite as astonishing note see lakey's england the eighteenth century End of note. this new social life had a marked effect in polishing men's words and manners the typical londoner of queen anne's day was still rude and a little vulgar in his tastes the city was still very filthy the streets unlighted and infested at night by bands of rowdies and mohawks but outwardly men sought to refine their manners according to prevailing standards and to be elegant to have good form was a man's first duty whether he entered society or wrote literature one can hardly read a book or poem of the age without feeling this superficial elegance government still had its opposing tory and whig parties and the church was divided into catholics anglicans and dissenters but the growing social life offset many antagonisms producing at least the outward impression of peace and unity nearly every writer of the age busied himself with religion as well as with party politics the scientist newton as sincerely as the churchman barrow the philosophical locke no less earnestly than the evangelical wesley but nearly all tempered their zeal with moderation and argued from reason and scripture or used delicate satire upon their opponents instead of denouncing them as followers of satan there were exceptions of course but the general tendency of the age was toward toleration man had found himself in the long struggle for personal liberty now he turned to the task of discovering his neighbor 
of finding in whig and tory in catholic and protestant in anglican and dissenter the same general human characteristics that he found in himself this good work was helped moreover by the spread of education and by the growth of the national spirit following the victories of marlborough on the continent in the midst of heated argument it needed only a word gibraltar blenheim ramilly malplaquet or a poem of victory written in a garret note addison's campaign seventeen o four written to celebrate the battle of blenheim End of note to tell a patriotic people that under their many differences they were all alike englishmen in the latter half of the century the political and social progress is almost bewildering the modern form of cabinet government responsible to parliament and the people had been established under george i and in seventeen fifty seven the cynical and corrupt practices of walpole premier of the first tory cabinet were replaced by the more enlightened policies of pitt schools were established clubs and coffee-houses increased books and magazines multiplied until the press was the greatest visible power in england the modern great dailies the chronicle post and times began their career of public education religiously all the churches of england felt the quickening power of that tremendous spiritual revival known as methodism under the preaching of wesley and whitefield outside her own borders three great men clive in india wolfe on the plains of abraham cook in australia and the islands of the pacific were unfurling the banner of st george over the untold wealth of new lands and spreading the world-wide empire of the anglo-saxons an age of prose literary characteristics in every preceding age we have noted especially the poetical works which constitute according to matthew arnold the glory of english literature now for the first time we must chronicle the triumph of english prose a multitude of practical interests arising from the new social and political conditions demanded expression not simply in books but more especially in pamphlets magazines and newspapers poetry was inadequate for such a task hence the development of prose of the unfettered word as dante calls it a development which astonishes us by its rapidity and excellence the graceful elegance of addison's essays the terse vigor of swift's satires the artistic finish of fielding's novels the sonorous eloquence of gibbon's history and of burke's orations these have no parallel in the poetry of the age indeed poetry itself became prosaic in this respect that it was used not for creative works of imagination but for essays for satire for criticism for exactly the same practical ends as was prose the poetry of the first half of the century as typified in the work of pope is polished and witty enough but artificial it lacks fire fine feeling enthusiasm the glow of the elizabethan age and the moral earnestness of puritanism in a word it interests us as a study of life rather than delights or inspires us by its appeal to the imagination 
the variety and excellence of prose works and the development of a serviceable prose style which had been begun by dryden until it served to express clearly every human interest and emotion these are the chief literary glories of the eighteenth century satire in the literature of the preceding age we noted two marked tendencies the tendency to realism in subject matter and the tendency to polish and refinement of expression both these tendencies were continued in the augustan age and are seen clearly in the poetry of pope who brought the couplet to perfection and in the prose of addison the third tendency is shown in the prevalence of satire resulting from the unfortunate union of politics with literature we have already noted the power of the press in this age and the perpetual strife of political parties nearly every writer of the first half of the century was used and rewarded by whigs or tories for satirizing their enemies and for advancing their special political interests pope was a marked exception but he nevertheless followed the prose writers in using satire too largely in his poetry now satire that is a literary work which searches out the faults of men or institutions in order to hold them up to ridicule is at best a destructive kind of criticism a satirist is like a laborer who clears away the ruins and rubbish of an old house before the architect and builders begin on a new and beautiful structure the work may sometimes be necessary but it rarely arouses our enthusiasm while the satires of pope swift and addison are doubtless the best in our language we hardly place them with our great literature which is always constructive in spirit and we have the feeling that all these men were capable of better things than they ever wrote the classic age the period we are studying is known to us by various names it is often called the age of queen anne but unlike elizabeth this meekly stupid queen had practically no influence upon our literature the name classic age is more often heard but in using it we should remember clearly these three different ways in which the word classic is applied to literature one the term classic refers in general to writers of the highest rank in any nation as used in our literature it was first applied to the works of the great greek and roman writers like homer and virgil and any english book which followed the simple and noble method of these writers was said to have a classic style later the term was enlarged to cover the great literary works of other ancient nations so that the bible and the avestas as well as the iliad and the aeneid are called classics two every national literature has at least one period in which an unusual number of great writers are producing books and this is called the classic period of a nation's literature thus the reign of augustus is the classic or golden age of rome the generation of dante is the classic age of italian literature the age of louis the fourteenth is the french classic age and the age of queen anne is often called the classic age of england three the word classic acquired an entirely different meaning in the period we are studying and we shall better understand this by reference to the preceding ages 
the elizabethan writers were led by patriotism by enthusiasm and in general by romantic emotions they wrote in a natural style without regard to rules and though they exaggerated and used too many words their works are delightful because of their vigor and freshness and fine feeling in the following age patriotism had largely disappeared from politics and enthusiasm from literature poets no longer wrote naturally but artificially with strange and fantastic verse forms to give effect since fine feeling was wanting and this is the general character of the poetry of the puritan age note great writers in every age men like shakespeare and milton make their own style they are therefore not included in this summary among the minor writers also there are exceptions to the rule and fine feeling is often manifest in the poetry of dunn herbert vaughan and herrick End of note gradually our writers rebelled against the exaggerations of both the natural and the fantastic style they demanded that poetry should follow exact rules and in this they were influenced by french writers especially by boileau and rapin who insisted on precise methods of writing poetry and who professed to have discovered their rules in the classics of horace and aristotle in our study of the elizabethan drama we noted the good influence of the classic movement in insisting upon that beauty of form and definiteness of expression which characterized the dramas of greece and rome and in the work of dryden and his followers we see a revival of classicism in the effort to make english literature conform to rules established by the great writers of other nations at first the results were excellent especially in prose but as the creative vigor of the elizabethans was lacking in this age writing by rule soon developed a kind of elegant formalism which suggests the elaborate social code of the time just as a gentleman might not act naturally but must follow exact rules in doffing his hat or addressing a lady or entering a room or wearing a wig or offering his snuff-box to a friend so our writers lost individuality and became formal and artificial the general tendency of literature was to look at life critically to emphasize intellect rather than imagination the form rather than the content of a sentence writers strove to repress all emotion and enthusiasm and to use only precise and elegant methods of expression this is what is often meant by the classicism of the ages of pope and johnson it refers to the critical intellectual spirit of many writers to the fine polish of their heroic couplets or the elegance of their prose and not to any resemblance which their work bears to true classic literature in a word the classic movement had become pseudo-classic i e a false or sham classicism and the latter term is now often used to designate a considerable part of eighteenth-century literature Note we have endeavored here simply to show the meaning of terms in general use in our literature but it must be remembered that it is impossible to classify or to give a descriptive name to the writers of any period or century while classic or pseudo-classic may apply to a part of eighteenth-century literature 
every age has both its romantic and its classic movements in this period the revolt against classicism is shown in the revival of romantic poetry under gray collins burns and thompson and in the beginning of the english novel under defoe richardson and fielding these poets and novelists who have little or no connection with classicism belong chronologically to the period we are studying they are reserved for special treatment in the sections following end of note to avoid this critical difficulty we have adopted the term augustan age a name chosen by the writers themselves who saw in pope addison swift johnson and burke the modern parallels to horace virgil cicero and all that brilliant company who made roman literature famous in the days of augustus alexander pope sixteen eighty eight seventeen forty four pope is in many respects a unique figure in the first place he was for a generation the poet of a great nation to be sure poetry was limited in the early eighteenth century there were few lyrics little or no love poetry no epics no dramas or songs of nature worth considering but in the narrow field of satiric and didactic verse pope was the undisputed master his influence completely dominated the poetry of his age and many foreign writers as well as the majority of english poets looked to him as their model second he was a remarkably clear and adequate reflection of the spirit of the age in which he lived there is hardly an ideal a belief a doubt a fashion a whim of queen anne's time that is not neatly expressed in his poetry third he was the only important writer of that age who gave his whole life to letters swift was a clergyman and politician addison was secretary of state other writers depended on patrons or politics or pensions for fame and a livelihood but pope was independent and had no profession but literature and fourth by the sheer force of his ambition he won his place and held it in spite of religious prejudice and in the face of physical and temperamental obstacles that would have discouraged a stronger man for pope was deformed and sickly dwarfish in soul and body he knew little of the world of nature or of the world of the human heart he was lacking apparently in noble feeling and instinctively chose a lie when the truth had manifestly more advantages yet this jealous peevish waspish little man became the most famous poet of his age and the acknowledged leader of english literature we record the fact with wonder and admiration but we do not attempt to explain it life pope was born in london in sixteen eighty eight the year of the revolution his parents were both catholics who presently removed from london and settled in binfield near windsor where the poet's childhood was passed partly because of an unfortunate prejudice against catholics in the public schools partly because of his own weakness and deformity pope received very little school education but browsed for himself among english books and picked up a smattering of the classics very early he began to write poetry and records the fact with his usual vanity as yet a child nor yet a fool to fame i lisped in numbers for the numbers came 
being debarred by his religion from many desirable employments he resolved to make literature his life work and in this he resembled dryden who he tells us was his only master though much of his work seems to depend on boileau the french poet and critic note pope's satires for instance are strongly suggested in boileau his rape of the lock is much like the mock heroic le lutrin and the essay on criticism which made him famous is an english edition and improvement of l'art poétique the last was in turn a combination of the ars poetica of horace and of many well-known rules of the classicists End of note when only sixteen years old he had written his pastorals a few years later appeared his essay on criticism which made him famous with the publication of the rape of the lock in seventeen twelve pope's name was known and honored all over england and this dwarf of twenty-four years by the sheer force of his own ambition had jumped to the foremost place in english letters it was soon after this that voltaire called him the best poet of england and at present of all the world which is about as near the truth as voltaire generally gets in his numerous universal judgments for the next twelve years pope was busy with poetry especially with his translations of homer and his work was so successful financially that he bought a villa at twickenham on the thames and remained happily independent of wealthy patrons for a livelihood led by his success pope returned to london and for a time endeavored to live the gay and dissolute life which was supposed to be suitable for a literary genius but he was utterly unfitted for it mentally and physically and soon retired to twickenham there he gave himself up to poetry manufactured a little garden more artificial than his verses and cultivated his friendship with martha blount with whom for many years he spent a good part of each day and who remained faithful to him to the end of his life at twickenham he wrote his moral epistles poetical satires modeled after horace and revenged himself upon all his critics in the bitter abuse of the dunciad he died in seventeen forty four and was buried at twickenham his religion preventing him from the honor which was certainly his due of a resting place in westminster abbey works of pope for convenience we may separate pope's work into three groups corresponding to the early middle and later period of his life in the first he wrote his pastorals windsor forest messiah essay on criticism eloise to abelard and the rape of the lock in the second his translations of homer in the third the dunciad and the epistles the latter containing the famous essay on man and the epistle to dr arbuthnot which is in truth his apologia and in which alone we see pope's life from his own viewpoint essay on criticism the essay on criticism sums up the art of poetry as taught first by horace then by boileau and the eighteenth century classicists though written in heroic couplets we hardly consider this as a poem but rather as a storehouse of critical maxims for fools rush in where angels fear to tread 
to err is human to forgive divine a little learning is a dangerous thing these lines and many more like them from the same source have found their way into our common speech and are used without thinking of the author whenever we need an apt quotation rape of the lock the rape of the lock is a masterpiece of its kind and comes nearer to being a creation than anything else that pope has written the occasion of the famous poem was trivial enough a fop at the court of queen anne one lord petra snipped a lock of hair from the abundant curls of a pretty maid of honor named arabella fermor the young lady resented it and the two families were plunged into a quarrel which was the talk of london pope being appealed to seized the occasion to construct not a ballad as the cavaliers would have done nor an epigram as french poets love to do but a long poem in which all the mannerisms of society are pictured in minutest detail and satirized with the most delicate wit the first edition consisting of two cantos was published in seventeen twelve and it is amazing now to read of the trivial character of london court life at the time when english soldiers were battling for a great continent in the french and indian wars its instant success caused pope to lengthen the poem by three more cantos and in order to make a more perfect burlesque of an epic poem he introduces gnomes sprites sylphs and salamanders Note, these are the four kinds of spirits inhabiting the four elements according to the rosicrucians a fantastic sect of spiritualists of that age in the dedication of the poem pope says he took the idea from a french book called le comte de gabalie End of note instead of the gods of the great epics with which his readers were familiar the poem is modeled after two foreign satires boileau's le lutrin reading desk a satire on the french clergy who raised a huge quarrel over the location of a lectern and la secchia rapita stolen bucket a famous italian satire on the petty causes of the endless italian wars pope however went far ahead of his masters in style and in delicacy of handling a mock heroic theme and during his lifetime the rape of the lock was considered as the greatest poem of its kind in all literature the poem is still well worth reading for as an expression of the artificial life of the age of its cards parties toilettes lapdogs tea-drinking snuff-taking and idle vanities it is as perfect in its way as tamburlaine which reflects the boundless ambition of the elizabethans pope's translations the fame of pope's iliad which was financially the most successful of his books was due to the fact that he interpreted homer in the elegant artificial language of his own age not only do his words follow literary fashions but even the homeric characters lose their strength and become fashionable men of the court so the criticism of the scholar bentley was most appropriate when he said it is a pretty poem mr pope but you must not call it homer 
pope translated the entire iliad and half of the odyssey and the latter work was finished by two cambridge scholars elijah fenton and william broom who imitated the mechanical couplet so perfectly that it is difficult to distinguish their work from that of the great poet of the age a single selection is given to show how in the nobler passages even pope may faintly suggest the elemental grandeur of homer the troops exulting set in order round and beaming fires illumined all the ground as when the moon refulgent lamp of night o'er heaven's clear azure spreads her sacred light when not a breath disturbs the deep serene and not a cloud o'ercasts the solemn scene around her throne the vivid planets roll and stars unnumbered gild the glowing pole o'er the dark trees a yellower verdure shed and tip with silver every mountain's head essay on man the essay is the best known and the most quoted of all pope's works except in form it is not poetry and when one considers it as an essay and reduces it to plain prose it is found to consist of numerous literary ornaments without any very solid structure of thought to rest upon the purpose of the essay is in pope's words to vindicate the ways of god to man and as there are no unanswered problems in pope's philosophy the vindication is perfectly accomplished in four poetical epistles concerning man's relations to the universe to himself to society and to happiness the final result is summed up in a few well-known lines all nature is but art unknown to thee all chance direction which thou canst not see all discord harmony not understood all partial evil universal good and spite of pride in erring reason's spite one truth is clear whatever is is right like the essay on criticism the poem abounds in quotable lines such as the following which make the entire work well worth reading hope springs eternal in the human breast man never is but always to be blessed know then thyself presume not god to scan the proper study of mankind is man the same ambition can destroy or save and makes a patriot as it makes a knave honor and shame from no condition rise act well your part there all the honor lies vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen yet seen too oft familiar with her face we first endure then pity then embrace behold the child by nature's kindly law pleased with a rattle tickled with a straw some livelier plaything gives his youth delight a little louder but as empty quite scarfs garters gold amuse his riper stage and beads and prayer-books are the toys of age pleased with this bauble still as that before till tired he sleeps and life's poor play is o'er note compare this with shakespeare's all the world's a stage in as you like it act two scene seven end of note
miscellaneous works the dunciad i e the iliad of the dunces began originally as a controversy concerning shakespeare but turned out to be a coarse and revengeful satire upon all the literary men of the age who had aroused pope's anger by their criticism or lack of appreciation of his genius though brilliantly written and immensely popular at one time its present effect on the reader is to arouse a sense of pity that a man of such acknowledged power and position should abuse both by devoting his talents to personal spite and petty quarrels among the rest of his numerous works the reader will find pope's estimate of himself best set forth in his epistle to dr arbuthnot and it will be well to close our study of this strange mixture of vanity and greatness with the universal prayer which shows at least that pope had considered and judged himself and that all further judgment is consequently superfluous End of section twenty nine